Welcome to the Top Down Brain Podcast, where you can boost your resilience with research-backed tools to stress less and be happier as you move toward your highest potential. Resilience, the ability to bounce back from life's challenges faster and higher, is a skill that you can learn and practice. The episodes fall into three subcategories. Highest Potential, where you're going to get evidence-based tips from my monthly conversation with Fiona Merton, an award-winning author and chartered UK organizational psychologist. Optimize Me, where you'll get cutting-edge practices for best health and peak performance from mind, body, and lifestyle medicine. And Take a Chill Pill episodes will guide you through a relaxation response, an antidote to chronic toxic stress so that you can soar under pressure. I'm Dr. Juna Bobby. I'm a board-certified physician and a mom of two amazing kids. Ten years ago, I left one of the most prestigious medical practices in Manhattan to dedicate my career to teaching the science of resilience to students who are curious about accelerating change in their own minds and lives for peak performance and wellness. My experience teaching high-performing students of all ages at Juilliard Pre-College, NYU, Columbia, and many other organizations have led me to the creation of my newest digital courses, Plan to Soar, Soar Under Pressure, and Top-Down Resiliency Training for individuals and organizations. And the great reviews are rolling in. Sign up for more info at topdownbrain.com. A portion of all proceeds go to those students in need. This is part two with Angela Duckworth, founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance scientific insights that help children thrive. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, and in 2013, she was named a MacArthur Fellow, otherwise known as the Genius Grant. Her TED Talk is one of the most watched with over 25 million views, and she's the author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, a number one New York Times bestseller. She also co-hosts No Stupid Questions podcast with Stephen Dubner. What seemed like unfortunate scheduling errors and technical issues turned out to work in my favor because I got to talk to Angela not just once, but twice. You mentioned that your dad would tell you that you're no genius, but of course you were named a MacArthur Fellow, otherwise known as the Genius Grant. Yeah, I know. Yeah, my dad had high standards (laughs) and, uh, you know, I don't think he meant it malevolently, but, um, but he did, he was very fond of saying, you know, things like, oh, you know, your mother's no Picasso, like, cause she was an artist <laughs> and, you know, like, oh, like we play piano and be like, well, you're no Beethoven. I mean, just, I think he was sort of trying to be funny. I think he was also like remarking that his children weren't, weren't geniuses. And, and that was something he thought about, you know, he, he really was obsessed with uh, high achievement. Mm-hmm. And, but now you are right. I know. Isn't right. grit the, all the, about the, high achievement? <laughs> it is. And I have to say, like, I, you know, not to say that it's the only thing or or yeah. even, you know, the most important thing, but yeah, I mean, I'll own it. Like, I, I really love studying human excellence. Like, I love seeing somebody who is like a world-class chef. Like, it's just so fun for me. Um, you know, the craft, I just watched, like everybody did, The Last Dance but I feel like I was like the last person to watch The Last Dance. Have you have you seen I, this? No, like, I'm the last person. <laughs> have you heard about The Last Dance? No. <laughs> so this Michael Jordan documentary, it's 10, uh, like 10 discrete chapters. And it's okay. about The Last Dance is the name of his last season of basketball, but it's actually like a biopic. So it takes, you know, um, this kind of timeline of the last season, but it kind of goes forward and backward in time. And, you know, like, watching somebody like over the 
arc of a long career become better every single year. I mean, I, I guess I, yeah, I guess I may be the legacy of my dad's obsession with achievement is that he had a daughter who then did grow up to be also <laughs> obsessed with it. Um, and again, it's not like, you know, I've got these two teenage girls. It's not like, Oh my God, I hope Lucy and Amanda end up becoming, you know, world-class. And like, that's the only thing that matters, but, but I do think it's a, an amazing thing. And I, I love, I love it. Like I just, I really admire people who um, become better and better at what they do. Well, it's just that tweaking, right? Somebody who doesn't get bored with the same thing over and over again. Did you ever see um, that sushi guy, the documentary? Jiro oh, Dreams of yes. Sushi? Yeah, yes. same thing, right? I mean, that's yes. to me, as a psychologist, what I want to study is, you know, because I don't know anything about basketball and I never will. And I, and I don't know much about sushi aside from, you know, consuming it. <laughs> and um, and I don't know anything about swimming or skiing or, you know, uh, so many things that I study are just I want to see the through line. Right. Like what does Michael Jordan have in common with Jiro? Like it's 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 the same thing. Uh, and I think tweaking is a big part of it. I think that's. Um, maybe not the only thing, but it's a big part of it is like, you know, to never be done, to, to never feel like, you know, you've reached the limit of what you can do. So then you're really talking about artists, right? Because art, that's art, right? When you take something and you just make it. Well, it's interesting. I was just talking to... Um, you have to be obsessed to be an artist. Well, um, I don't know. Um, you know, people use the term differently. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I... Um, having a conversation with Gabrielle Hamilton recently. Um, actually, you mentioned this podcast that I have with Stephen Dubner, and it was a conversation in the context of this No Stupid Questions context uh, or, or, or podcast. And Gabrielle Hamilton, I was a big fan of for a long time because I loved her writing. So she writes about food and she is the owner of a restaurant in New York called Prune. And she said, oh, I think of cooking as a craft and not an art. So mm. when she uses that, you know, you know, she she had a kind of like specific term, but but I think whether you're talking about like art or craft or science or that there is something about um, you know trying to get better. I mean, you could say all these things are you know like things where there is better or worse, and these people always want to move in the direction of better. So why did she say craft versus art? Like, what's the difference? You know, it's really interesting to talk to her about. So she's a writer and she's a she's a chef. Yeah. And um, and she may at this point be equally known for both. But at one point, she was certainly better known as a chef. Right. So uh -huh. it's like wildly popular, critically acclaimed, tiny little restaurant in New York. And then, of course, she wrote these um, essays and books. She writes for the New York Times now. So now she's both. And for her, she said, uh, you know, food is more of a crap. She, she was like, there's a certain lightness when she cooks. Like, she doesn't take it that serious. She's like, come on, it's food. You're going to eat it. Like, let's not take it so seriously. Um, whereas she was talking about, like, laboring to put words on the page and how, like, that may have been more of an art. I mean, I don't want to um, butcher, so to speak, what, like, mm -hmm. what she really meant by mm -hmm. that. But anyway, these phrases certainly have, like, different connotations for different people. Yeah. I think both art and craft are a lot of work. And, uh, and craft can become art. Depends on how you use the term, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that in art, there's this connotation of creativity and like originality and craft doesn't necessarily have that. Hmm. Uh, so, so maybe that's partly what people mean. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. I think of like knitting, knitting is a craft <laughs> or, or like definitely needle can be an art, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think when I, for me, it's like when you take it to another level, then it becomes art. Like when you take it to the level of obsession and expression, I think. 
when it becomes like expression. Yeah, like I saw this exhibit uh, of this woman. She like beaded an entire kitchen. What? Like beaded. Like I'm going to send you a picture of it, but she took yeah, tiny little beads and it was at the Whitney and it was an entire kitchen. She beaded even like the cereal in her kitchen, the oven, all of it. It took her three or four years. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can she still use the kitchen? No, it's all like... So it's now like an art exhibit. So it's, now it's art. Yeah. yeah well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, very cool. I can't wait to see that. For that Chinese artist. See, I can't remember any of their names right now, but I will put it in the notes if I air this. But the Chinese artist who took all of his mother's belongings, including her house, and put it in the MoMA. Like, oh, like and then it was MoMA. art. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, my mom's actually an artist, as I said, you know. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a conversation with her about that. So is there anything that you're obsessed with lately? Like books? art, TV shows. Okay, let's see. Well, first of all, I just finished David Chang's memoir. And by David Chang, you mean the famous chef of Momofuku. And I'm like slightly obsessed with David Chang. And uh, it's a it's a great story. And you might think like, oh, you know, Angela's obsessed with David Chang because, um, you know, he's really gritty and really um, excellent at what he does. And that would be why I started getting obsessed with David Chang. Also, I like ate his, some of his food in his restaurants. And I was like, this is amazing. Um, but his memoir, to my surprise, actually, is incredibly uh, honest. And it's, it's honest about his mental health issues and his like um, many uh, imperfections, at least in his own words. So anyway, I, I recommend it. And I think, um, I think I'm like obsessed with like how you would catalyze some of the growth that he describes having um, where he learns, you know, to manage his grit, to like, um, you know, be more empathic and, and more honest. And I, I feel like what my job is as a psychologist is to like understand how to reverse engineer that growth and, and help other people grow a little more intentionally and a little more rapidly than just sort of like, oh, and then life happened. And I learned all these things. I love it. I love that whole description. And I definitely want that speedway to mm. learning all this without having to wait till I'm 90 years old and wise. <laughs> But this evidence that we can actually change our character, that's a fairly new concept, right? Yeah, it is. And I like when I went to school, it was 1992 when I got my bachelor's degree in neurobiology. And and the, the kind of received wisdom was that, you know, there wasn't a lot of meaningful plasticity in the brain after a pretty early age. It was based on, I think, early research on cats and like you know, the, the visual system of cats is like, oh, you know, the visual system developed so early, you know, but, but uh, human beings and our, um, and our neurons, you know, especially those outside of our visual system, it turns out like they, they, they are um, always remodeling connections and, and it is possible to um, change in uh, meaningful ways. I think, for example, if anybody's gone to therapy, you know, they were, do a little reflection, like, did you change? I mean, I went to therapy and I will tell you, like, I changed. So I, I think it's never too early, as you say, and I think it's also never too and late. And research basically shows that you could drive your own change. And I think that's what you're trying to do in part, right? To help people accelerate and intentionally create change in their own brains. I do. I think people can, you know, and I don't want to be all like Pollyanna about no, it. But and it's I really, know that it's really powerful. It is. Yeah. It is like, oh, you can. And I actually think, you know, people can change from like 
hearing something and then like, you know, that leads them to maybe read a book, then the book leads them to start in, you know, some other project. And absolutely, I, I'm, I'm, I think, you know, I'm definitely also an optimist about, <laughs> about, about human nature, but I think there's a, a good deal of scientific evidence, um, uh, uh, you know, to back us both up on that. And for anyone who's out there listening who hasn't had the most nurturing experiences in their lives, what would you say f- to them? You know, um, there are some investors who I've talked to who do venture capital who actually specifically look for the people who have had less than nurturing experiences um, and, you know, a fair amount of adversity because they feel like, oh, that person I don't have to worry about, like, because they know adversity's coming. I mean, you know, if you're going to ever do anything great, even if you're born into privilege, even if you're born into like the most high functioning family in the world, like you're going to experience adversity. So a lot of investors tell me that they look for somebody who has had like a less than perfect life so that they know that when the future happens, that that person will have the skills, the resilience, the mindset to um, to handle it. And I really honestly have never interviewed a single person who I would consider, you know, a paragon of grit, uh, you know, an exemplar of passion and perseverance, who doesn't have like, you know, just a lot of stories of like lots of chapters in their life where like it was a dark chapter, it was like a hard chapter, like all kinds of dysfunctionality. And that was revealing to me, like, you know, if you get to know anybody well, um, even your heroes, like, you know, you realize that like, they're also like you, you know, lots of imperfections and, you know, mental health issues, like mistakes you they make where you're like, wow, you did that. And, you know, embarrassments, um, mm-hmm. people in their family that they don't get along with. So, so yeah, people are, you know, they could be your heroes, but, you know, they shouldn't be thought of as superheroes. Like, you know, we're all human. Mm-hmm. So the next time I pitch some investors, I'll be sure to tell them about my adverse childhood experiences. <laughs> yeah, you got to read the investment pickers. <laughs> you know, d- does that mean like when you introduce yourself in the first sentence, no, do you want to start talking about your childhood? I, I don't not. know. But but I think but I think honesty is good. I think honesty is good. I have know. to say almost everyone on this podcast and people that I've been drawn to have an adversity story. Mm. One of my um, graduate students, who's now going to be a professor at University of Chicago, um, her name is Lauren Eskriswinkler, and one of her first studies was on co- what's called survivor Ooh. mission. And what she was interested in is, um, you know, one response to adversity is actually survivor guilt, and that's been well studied, where you feel like, wow, why am I the only person who survived? And actually, it's like uh, it creates a lot of negative. Um, well, you feel guilty. You feel like like um, like you ought not to have you know survived a hurricane when you saw other people die. But she was interested in whether there was also potentially a very positive response, which is survivor mission, like to somebody who would have, you know, gone through, um, you know, uh, rape, who had been assaulted in other ways, who had gone through, you know, their own mental health crisis in some cases. And she found evidence to um, support this idea that you can use that to actually give you purpose. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right, was, you know, born of tragedy, Mm -hmm. right? But Mothers Against Drunk Driving had a massive impact on the reduction of drunk driving. And so um, I think maybe if we think about our own particular wounds and um, stories that we can say like, well, maybe in fact, in that very realm where I, you know, really suffered, like I will find some meaning and purpose by helping other people. That would be in the realm of post-traumatic growth, right? Yeah, yeah I think a lot of tra- post-traumatic growth, which um, which you know about, but I'll just say for others. Yeah, um, sure 
in the wake of trauma, of course, we've all heard by now of post-traumatic stress, mm -hmm. uh, which is, um, you know, when you have a adverse response that can be lingering and you can be kind of hyper vigilant for disaster and um, it can be very problematic. Um, it's why it's called post-traumatic stress disorder. But there is um, very often a post-traumatic growth response instead of or even following post-traumatic stress. And that is to find meaning and to basically come out better than you would have um, otherwise. And a lot of people who, you know, suffer through illness or through other kinds of trauma um, will say that there was post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know we're talking about like real deep trauma here. But we can also talk about the micro traumas that we have day to day, like the small social insults or the little things that happen that upset us during a typical day. Do you think that these could all be learning opportunities too? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I just taught a class on um, feedback, right? And I said, you know, I, I, I asked my undergraduates at yeah. Penn, so they're all, you know, Ivy League undergraduates. And I asked them, like, in one word, how does it feel when you get positive feedback? And so they, you know, texted into their phone. They're like, great, Ooh. proud, excited, validated, wonderful, happy, joyful. And then I said, you know, what does it feel like when you get negative feedback, right? Because that's a small, I mean, it's not a trauma, but it's I like- I mean, it could, right? Like it could build up in your mind, especially if you mull it over, over and over again, right? Exactly. Like wounded, terrible, embarrassed, horrible, you know, like tired. You know. And then I showed them this diagram from, you know, how psychologists actually think of like feedback when you have a goal and then you get feedback. And sometimes the feedback is positive, but sometimes it's negative. It's the same part of the diagram, which is like the, it's it's just the part where you get information and, and you use that word. I think if we could frame Every hour of every day, you know, the good days, the bad days, the times you come home and you're really proud, the times you come home and you're really discouraged, it's all information. And if you think to yourself, like, it's all learning, it's all information, I think it helps. I I, I try to frame things that way. Um, it doesn't make it, you know, effortless to get yes, absolutely. bad feedback. You, I mean, you still have those horrible emotions, right? You have that gnawing feeling in your gut and... And your insecurities uh, come out and you're, you feel quite vulnerable, which brings me mm. to my next question. How do you deal with negative feedback, Angela? Well, you know, I'm defensive, to be honest. You, usually when people um, say like, hey, you got this wrong, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm immediately defensive. I actually don't know many people who aren't defensive. I was actually just talking to um, a colleague of mine named Ayelet. Fishbach. She's at University of Chicago. She's a very famous professor, and she does a lot of studies on feedback and failure, et cetera. And she is uh, also somebody who's like, oh, I hate negative feedback. But I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. a normal human right? reaction, so right? One, Who likes negative feedback anyway? Right. It's 100% normal. Just to be aware of it. And like you said, you know, for the young people who are listening or for the parents of young people, like it's just normal to feel that way. The question isn't whether you're going to feel that way. The question yes. is how long you're going to feel that way mm -hmm, and, and how quickly mm -hmm. you can get to <laughs> or ever get to the point where you're like, okay, 
fine. Yeah. Let me actually like learn from it. So I, I say to my students, whenever something happens to you, there's information, like we both said, but there's also a motivational like payload. And um, even just to understand that, like you said, like that's really powerful. Like if I had been told when I was 16, like, hey, by the way, every single time somebody praises you or criticizes you, there's both information and there's also like like an emotional, motivational yes, payload, I'd yes. be like, oh, good, I love good that. to know. <laughs> and honestly, some of the harshest ones, you know, you know, those, um, sometimes you can gain so much from them. Of course, it takes a while. And also you have to take it with a grain of salt because especially if it's coming from someone who doesn't have your best interest at heart, then you definitely have to um, understand what part of it is them and their baggage. It's something that you can process and maybe there's something you can glean from it or learn from it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it is not easy. It is not easy. And that is why I think uh, parents and coaches and teachers have to have to like, you know, that recipe we started off with, like challenge plus support. I think that is why like when people are challenged, they do get defensive, they do get angry, they do get resentful. And so the support thing is like the thing that keeps them coming back. Yes, You're like, yeah, but totally. I know my mom loves me. So, all right, fine. I'll listen to what she said. Um, I always like, let say, me, let me like, you know, you, yeah. I love you. And that's why I'm giving you this feedback and I'm on your team. You gotta constantly remind them that you're on their team. And yeah, now shifting 100%. topics a bit, I just wanted to talk a little bit about grit and possibly some words of wisdom for managing and dealing with the racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I will just first state like, I, you know, I do believe that there is racism and as people have pointed out, like institutional racism, structural inequality. And like, so just in case it's not abundantly clear, um, because sometimes when people think like, oh, if you believe in grit, you don't believe in these social forces that are um, that are around us. And I absolutely believe that those things exist and also that we should work on them. So I think for me, I was just on the um, on a webinar with Neil Lewis, who's a professor at Cornell, and he was speaking to um, our students. And he said, as a psychologist, he started off studying things that were just like the individual, because that's what psychology is. You know, grit is about individuals. But mm -hmm. um, as he has gotten um, more expert in his um, craft, he realizes that you can't ignore these, um, you know, other forces that are outside the individual. Um, and so now he studies like the individual in context. And I'm um, a little bit behind him in my journey because I am also trying to now increasingly study like the conditions under which um, you know, grit, which I still believe is important that can be developed, um, the conditions under which, uh, you know, the individual can do something. If you are a kid who is in an um, environment where like you really don't have any control over what you do, and there are very um, few opportunities, then you are not going to, I think, have any reason to like work hard and, um, and stay committed to something. So that was my second conversation with Angela Duckworth. Please tune into the next episode for questions and answers from parents. And by the way, that artist that I mentioned, her name was Eliza Liu, and it actually took her five years to beat the entire kitchen. And you can still see the kitchen. It's at the Whitney Museum in Manhattan. The second artist that I mentioned, his name was Song Dong, and he was at the MoMA in 1991. Wow, time flies. Go to topdownbrain.com to opt into our newsletter for extra tips and information on our neuroscience-powered planner and online courses for K-12 and beyond parents and professionals. 
Please share this podcast with anyone who believes in the scientific method and are curious about boosting performance with mental and physical resilience for themselves or their kids. This podcast is separate from my role as faculty at the Juilliard Pre-College Division, and the contents of this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Thank you so much, and until next time, this is Dr. Juna wishing you and your family wellness.